Yo, what's cracking? John Fitch here. John Fitch knows nothing. We got another good show for you tonight. A really good one I'm excited about because uh, we have a privacy expert in the house. He has his own podcast, The Watchman Podcast, and he has a book available. And um, yeah, we'll talk a little bit of crypto and we'll talk about a lot about keeping yourself safe and private, which I kind of almost feel like it's almost too late. It's like Edward Snowden warned us like 10 years ago and no one really cared and it's only gotten worse. So I'll play something to get us going and then we'll welcome the Watchmen on. and roll okay today we're welcoming gabriel uh custodiet i'm terrible at uh pronunciation of course and uh i'm gonna welcome him on it's just gonna be uh his voice today gabriel how are we doing i'm doing great can you hear me Oh yes, we can hear you. Excellent, loud and clear. Excellent. Sorry for uh, the delay. I I didn't get the initial invitation, so we're we're good now, though. Oh, no worries, no worries. Um, technical stuff. I'm not the best with the technology, so sometimes accidents happen. No problem. <laughs> uh, so tell everybody a little bit about yourself, uh, uh, about your show, about your book, and uh, how you got into the space of privacy online. Yeah, sure. So uh, Gabriel Custodiet, um, I guess is how I pronounce it. It's a, it's a Roman, ancient Roman name, so who knows how they pronounce it. Uh, so I'm the author of what I think is the best privacy guide out there, uh, The Watchman Guide to Privacy, um, uh, which is a sort of to-the-point guide to achieving a good measure of privacy in all realms, physical, digital, phone privacy, financial, etc., I also host a podcast called the Watchman Privacy Podcast, where we discuss how the systems around us work and then discuss solutions as well. Uh, for example, one of my last episodes was how the encroachment of rental culture into our lives, you know, things like subscriptions, always online services, the fact that we can't own so many things these days um, is a path basically towards slavery. So I kind of explored that idea in my last podcast. I also have um, sort of privacy OGs that come on my podcast. Recently, I interviewed a guy who helped uh, people to create fake IDs to escape the Vietnam War draft. Uh, so that was an interesting one. Um, in terms of the rest of my background, well, they don't give out degrees in privacy, of course. So, you know, a lot of people assume I have a military or an FBI background. I, I won't affirm or deny that. But what I will say is that I learned about privacy myself through being self-taught. You know, I read all the books out there. I mean all of them. Um, I started practicing a privacy lifestyle for the last many years. I test everything. I research like a savage uh, and I'm an avid learner. And I try to stay balanced in terms of understanding computers, understanding finance and the legal realm, understanding physical privacy and the rest. A lot of people out there are just talking about digital privacy. That's part of the equation, but I try to, I try to 
uh, hit everything, so to speak. I, I mean, it's at a certain point, Kevin, are we, is it even possible to remain private? Because there's cameras everywhere. There's, there's biometrics, there's face recognition. Uh, there's the whole rental uh, society we have. Everything is rented. You don't own anything. You don't even own your music anymore. You own subscription services to music. So is it even possible really to, to be a ghost in the system? Well, you bring up a good point. And my position on that is I'm just going to try my hardest. I think there's a lot we can do. And I think we we can turn things around. Believe me, I know that uh, <laughs> things are pretty dire in a, in a number of ways. But I'm, I'm just kind of optimistic about it. Uh, I enjoy uh, learning about this stuff. And I do think that there is a, a good bit of privacy to be had out there. Um, and maybe we'll discuss some of that today. Yeah, so let's start with that. I mean, because like my introduction to privacy and the fact that we don't really have privacy anymore was was uh, the big opener was uh, Edward Snowden and and the leaks with uh, all of the NSA spying and content uh, collection that they go through, like all of our and you know there was leaks with AT and T. I think also was was recording and keeping tracks of everybody's phone calls and text messages and all that stuff. And it was kind of a big deal for a little bit. And then it just all disappeared and no one ever talked about it anymore. And I, I tried to do the privacy thing. I, I deleted my Facebook for a while and I stayed away from certain things. I only used Twitter kind of primarily for a while because it was supposed to be the freedom of speech platform, uh, which is a big joke. I now. remember those days. Yeah. And, you know, um, it kind of just went away. It was almost like a CIA psyop. I like to think that they they ran away with some things and distracted people and and uh, now we're here. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I, I don't think the a lot of the things that were happening from the NSA were, were actually changed after the Snowden leaks. It was just a um, a big hoopla and you know a little, a little bit of outrage and then it was it was business uh, as usual. So, yeah. but what what? Uh, you know, uh, people like Edward Snowden, they're, they're, and there were a lot of people before him sounding the horn uh, who were ignored. But, you know, things like, for example, AT&T, uh, there's a good workaround for that these days. We have private messengers, and they are encrypted end-to-end, -end, and they work. They they truly seem to work. And so uh, if you use One an app like Signal... You have to have both people using it, though, don't you? That's true. Yeah, that so you do lose some convenience. And so in order to have some of this privacy in your life, you do have to change your mindset, change some of your habits, because yes, if you want to use an app like Signal, you have to have it and the person that it, you're messaging with has to have it. And I mean, that, that's kind of how it has to work. If the system is going to be perfectly end to end encrypted, you have to be using the basically the same tool. Um, and so I think stuff like that is worth it. There's a lot more people, for example, using Signal these days. And that's just one little tool that we can use to uh, get around this stuff um, and, you know, have the texts and calls that we uh, have with people uh, protected. And the great thing about an app like Signal is that it's a data app. And so you can use it on your computer. When I travel, I don't even bring, I don't even bring a phone with me sometimes. I just call the people on my laptop. And that's the great thing about these 
internet-based applications as opposed to regular phone calling and SMS is that you can take them, you can put them on whatever device you want, and there's convenience in addition to privacy. That's, uh, man, it's hard to get your normie friends to download extra things to- uh, Well, you might you might be surprised. I'm, I'm surprised how many people have this app signal that I keep talking about. Really? Uh, they're putting a lot into marketing and there's a lot of people joining. Ago. And I, I, yeah. I joined it uh, ages ago when I first heard about it, maybe almost 10 years ago, eight years ago or something. And probably around the, probably, well, I guess 2014, probably, probably around the time I started buying Bitcoin. And I, I just couldn't get anybody else to get on it. I was the only person on it and I had no one to talk to on Signal. So I got rid of it. I guess well, it's enough time to yeah. pass. I should probably try it again. Well, you should just you should install it, load it up, and you might be surprised how many of your friends are using it these days. It's true. Um, so you just kind of you kind of got into this space just through your own concern of of your own privacy. Yeah, I think for me, I've I've always been one of these people who you didn't really have to convince. You know, what's the value of privacy? That it was just kind of self evident to me, and I've always been skeptical of everything, and so. Uh, it was it was an easy sell for me. I have some skills in, in a variety of things. And yeah, I, I, the main thing was I saw that not a lot of people were talking about this. Not a lot of people were, were doing something. There was a lot of people saying, oh yeah, you know, privacy is over, it's, it's the end. Um, and I kind of wanted to do something about it. And so that's why I wrote the guide initially and started the podcast. Because uh, I do think that there's some room uh, for us to have privacy and I want people to know that. Yeah, we definitely, I think, I, I think ownership and privacy are like two major things I believe in, you know, those, those, those like fundamental parts of freedom to be able to own your own property and to keep your own stuff private. Yeah, um, that's a, that's a good connection between privacy and ownership. One of the things I talked about in my podcast on rental culture is that when somebody else owns the thing you're using, whether that's your Gmail, you know, address, or your website domain, or I mean, or the house that you're renting, they can barge in whenever they want, they can sometimes see what you're doing, they can shut you off, they can cancel you. And so part of being privacy, uh, part of taking back some of your privacy is to own more things in your life, uh, to have more offline systems to have, you know, your own custom domain, email address instead of relying on Gmail, uh, you know, little things like this, because you're right, ownership and privacy, these are these are two similar concepts. No, I even think it's weird that, you know, the store knows what I eat, when I go and eat it, like when, when I'm buying it, how long it takes me to go through whatever product I'm, I'm buying. I think that that creeps me out. It's like they, they well, know how many eggs I go through in a month. Do you have a smart fridge? Uh, no, I do not. Interesting. How do they know that? Well, I mean, if I'm buying products with a, with a debit card or a credit card, like there aren't they aren't they itemized things on the receipts? Aren't, aren't aren't the processing companies getting access to that information? And they're probably selling it. I'd assume that they're selling it too, so I get advertised, you know, eggs more because that's what I buy most of. So when you, for example, you, you go to the uh, Kroger or whatever, and they print out the coupon for eggs, is that is that what you're saying? Because you yeah. buy so many eggs? 
I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm just making these an example, but it feels like right. if you're spending money on something, if I'm spending money on Amazon products, somebody's getting a look at what I'm buying. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I we know that Amazon and, and these places do it. I, you know, I didn't know that. Well, you know, for example, when you said that, I thought of these smart fridges, uh, and anything that is smart is probably a mistake for most people. But these smart fridges that analyze what you have in your uh, fridge, and so they know what you're eating, they know when you're running out, and they can make suggestions and all the rest. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, this stuff is not entirely harmless. But you know, when I go to, for example, like a Whole Foods, I'm not going to give my, uh, you know, I'm not going to give them my Amazon account because I don't need Amazon knowing what I'm eating and what supplements I use and all this stuff. Because yeah. I, I just don't want to. I, I don't think that's a. It's probably not a hill to die on, but you know, it's it's good practice. Yeah, it's just why why do you need to know it? Like, it's not that big of a deal, but at the same time, you don't need to know. What I'm, what supplements I'm taking? You don't need to know it. Exactly, and I, I could imagine a scenario being paranoid that I am that you know your supplement usage could be used against you or you know whatever you eat. Now here's a here's an interesting example. Um, yeah. The the World Economic Forum, or excuse me, uh, there was a lady, Christine Lagarde. She was formerly uh, head of one of these globalist organizations. I think the International Monetary Fund, and she was talking. She gave a speech a couple of years ago about how important data gathering could be, especially with central digital currencies. Mm -hmm. And she gave the example, she said, well, for example, um, it would be great to know what health decisions people are making. And her example was somebody who drinks spring water, who buys spring water and broccoli uh, is different from somebody who buys pizza and beer. And maybe we could encourage the person buying pizza and beer to do otherwise. And she left it really open like that, but you can kind of see the, you know, the the cogs starting to turn. How this stuff could be a, a mistake. Yeah, or or they're. I mean, I feel like they would more try to suggest the person who who eats, you know, healthy would they'd rather have them eating the pizza and the beer. Maybe it yeah. Like, it doesn't seem like they're really concerned about people's overall health. Like in the the last the last eighteen months, nineteen whatever, this whole COVID situation has showed us that everything's about you know, pills and injections and nothing about diet, nutrition, fat loss at all. Did, did you just say diet, uh, diet, John? I, I think you can, uh, I think you can get expelled from uh, the internet for saying terrible things like that. Exactly. So at that, and that's, that's one of the things I, I have a hard time thinking that they would use that information to actually help people and do some good. They, I think they would push it the other way. Like, well, you should have more fun. You should have more enjoyment in your life. Eat this garbage. Eat this trash. You're too skinny. Yeah, you might be right. You know, but uh, like, either way, knowledge knowledge is power. And people who think that, um, you know, there's there's nothing to lose by giving out all this information. Well, you know, when giant tech companies are paying big dollars or <laughs> a lot of money for this information, um, yeah. you know, information is is power. When you have information, when you know what people are doing, you're monitoring them. People's behavior literally changes, and you can make suggestions to do the make them do X, Y, and Z. You know that's just a psychological historical fact, and so, you know that's kind of why I just say I, I'm not going to give this stuff out. Just a very sort of basic mm -hmm. reason. Yeah, anytime somebody's collecting data on you or empirical evidence, so to speak, like they're able to sell it, they're able to use it somehow. And this, you, this may not be in your wheelhouse, but like, that's why, uh, 
so we talk about fight stuff sometimes on this on this podcast but there's the uh ufc performance institute and a lot of these fighters go for free to get tested at this at this place and they're testing you know body fat they're testing cardio lung volume they're testing uh just athletic ability strength test all this stuff and i feel like this is a dangerous situation because nothing's for free. So these athletes are going there and giving away this data to, to the UFC essentially. And who knows what they're doing with it. Do you think there's any risk that these people uh, could be putting themselves into just by willy nilly giving over all this information about themselves? Yeah. I mean, there are, of course, there are always risks with that. Uh, an, an interesting historical example, you know, the, the first person to really get interested in analytics like this is a, a very fascinating guy worth looking up called uh, Francis Galton, Francis Galton. And he invented thumb printing as a way to, uh, you know, d distinguish between people. He was a big proponent of analytics, all this stuff. And surprise, surprise, later in his life, he was also a huge proponent of eugenics. Uh, it turns out when you have all this data in front of you, uh, in his case, you know, he believed that some people were superior and he had all the data, you know, the data to, to prove it. So that's an interesting uh, just example of, you know, you have the information and what are you going to do with it? Uh, you know, if, if there's somebody with malintent who has this information, it's kind of yeah. two sides of the same coin. You collect the information. What are you going to do with that? And it's interesting to think that I think the the many of the problems with the with the world happened around 100 years ago. And this is a time when people started gathering data about the world. This was the scientific industrial revolution and they had more and more data and they started thinking, well, why don't we organize the world in a new way? We understand the world for the first time. Let's have central management. Let's have central banks controlling things. Let's do all this control because we have the information. If that makes sense. It does make sense. I got a comment here from one of my guys. Uh, so imagine a scenario where potential employers buy whatever uh, data is publicly available on you to really do a background check. I bet it already happens uh, if you realize it. What do you think the odds are that that's something that's going on already? Yeah, that definitely goes on. There's a company you can look it up right now. Let me let me see if it's correct. Fama, F-A-M-A, Fama. Uh, yeah, you can... Okay, that's not the right acronym, acronym, but I give an example in my book that uh, an employer hired a background check for one particular guy and he shared the results on Twitter. He said he actually got a, um, a copy of the results and it was 300 pages, oh, wow. 300 pages. And it showed all of his tweets he ever made and they were organized according to particular categories. Like he used the F word here. He said this about women here, et cetera, et cetera. So this stuff does happen. Oh. And I'll, I'll tell you what, um, there is a, there's going to be a lot more of this happening. There is a field yeah. called OSINT. Go ahead. No, no, I'm saying, yeah. It's like I, you hear stories about people losing their jobs because of some tweets they made when they're in high school. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're going to start not being able to get jobs because they have to go through all this uh, rigmarole just to, just to get hired. And, you know, th there's a lot of analytics out there. And there's a lot of easy ways of collecting social media posts and all the rest. Um, you know, I, I know how to use some of these tools myself and people just put their information out there and they think if it's on Facebook, that it's just them and their friends seeing it. Not at all true. Mm -hmm. uh, and so anything you say can be used against you. And there are increasing, there is increasing demand to uh, analyze potential employees. 
and it's 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 easy these days. So let's talk about that. Let's. Uh, why does privacy matter? What is uh, the consequences of not being a private person and just openly putting your information everywhere? Right. So I start off my book by uh, saying how Mark Zuckerberg said about 10 years ago, he said, privacy is no longer a social norm. Uh, but the funny thing is he proceeded to buy in his... Um, in his Bay Area house, all of the estates surrounding his house so that mm -hmm. nobody could live there, nobody could be near him. And then he bought a private island off of Hawaii. So, I mean, he answered the question himself. Privacy is protection. Privacy is peace of mind. If you are rich or high profile, you know, I don't have to convince you of the need for privacy. If you're skeptical of government, which killed 300 million people in the last 100 years, not including world wars, then I probably don't have to convince you about privacy. Um, you know, if you are one of millions of people being stalked or harassed or your identity stolen, of course, I don't need to convince these people, uh, you know, privacy makes sense. If you are one of, uh, if you're a gay, gay person and you live in one of 10 countries where you will receive the death penalty for being gay, uh, you know, I don't think I need to, you know, explain why privacy is important. Yeah. So for everybody else though, because people will say, well, that's not my scenario. Well, for everybody else, here's some interesting statistics. $6 trillion of cybercrime in the last year. So $6 trillion of cyber. Now, John, I know that the US government is spending that every month now, but that's still a lot of money. That's still a lot of money. Yeah, um, and so had, what is, is cybercrime? Yeah, I had somebody uh, got into my Amazon account and was watching uh, movies <laughs> they watched the movies and downloaded uh some games it was about a, i got about a hundred and about 130 150 dollars back from this but like yeah that's it's everywhere did you uh did you get the full amount back um i i uh i pretty much got the whole because there was just some things that there was just i wasn't buying those there was days where like i'd, I'd rent three movies but like I, I would never went rent three movies in a day or like once a week is like the most i ever do so there's just some obvious things that i could tell weren't me um some some games that were were bought and uh like my kids fire thing accounts they're on different emails and they're not connected to my my amazon account i created their own amazon account so like there's no way that they could have done it so it's probably some teenage kid you know found a stash of uh passwords somewhere got in and 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 you know got a couple hundred dollars worth of of stuff for free yeah exactly and in, in the case of amazon there you may have not lost that money, but they did. So, you know, there's, so, you know, they, that would still contribute to the $6 trillion of cybercrime. And yeah. some of my initial clients for consulting were people, yeah, who got scammed. They were scammed. Um, they received an email that said, you know, your, your uh, Wells Fargo account is compromised. Click here and log in. Well, that was a fake email. And when they logged in, they gave that information to the scammers who proceeded to, you know, take some money from them. And so, uh, this is just a very mundane, small uh, way that, you know, being being private uh, in this case, if, well, we can talk about some ways that we can get around that. Um, but, you know, privacy is a $6 trillion uh, problem uh, in terms of just cybercrime and, you know, uh, scams via phone, scams via email, you know, you name it. Um, there are entire forums on the deep web of people who are selling 
blatantly selling people's credit cards. You know, your credit card, my credit card, they're, you know, they're for sale. You can, in a few clicks right now, uh, you know, buy some of this stuff with Bitcoin. So this stuff is happening. Um, and yeah, uh, privacy matters. Um, if you want, are, we, uh, I can, I was going to say, if you want, I can uh, give a couple ways of protecting yourself like, against such yes, things. Yes, that would be good. Like basic, basic steps uh, and uh, ways that you can keep your, your information off offline or just uh, the stuff that matters away from people. Right. So the first thing you want to do is to start thinking like a minimalist, have fewer things, have fewer accounts and stop giving things out. Uh, you want to reject things by default. If somebody wants you to make uh, a new account, um, see if you can get around that. Uh, stop giving out your real information um, as much as you can. So let me just go through the steps here. So when I say stop giving out your real information, one thing you can do is have a PO box, a postal box, instead of sending things to your house. Um, one thing you can do is whenever somebody asks for a phone number, well, analyze the situation, see if you actually need to give it. Sometimes maybe you do. Uh, but in most cases, let's say you're ordering something online, they probably don't need to have your phone number. So maybe you can fill it with zeros. Or if you want to be convincing, you can uh, you know, give them a fake number. And I'll give you one right now, which I use and which a lot of people use. Uh, that is 248-434-5508. I'll repeat that in a second. But if you call that phone number, that will play Rick Astley's never going to give you up just on an endless loop. <laughs> and so that number was uh, 248-434-5508. And so I recommend everybody to uh, use that wherever you need to give a phone number. Now, in terms of protecting your phone number, you can easily use an app like MySudo, which generates uh, legitimate phone numbers that you can use. And so my MySudo account has nine different phone numbers. And I basically cordon off different parts of my life for that. And if it's a one-time sort of burner thing, I'll just use that particular one. And if it, if there's ever a problem, I can just delete it. And so I don't use my real phone number. To be honest, John, I don't even know what my real phone number is because I'm just using all these different phone numbers from uh, my pseudo. And so yeah, the I same would, thing I would for- often use my number and I would change one or two numbers in it. Yeah, the, the problem there is uh, somebody else is going to get your spam. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, like, uh, and if you, for example, didn't want to give your social security number, you know, somebody else is going to uh, bear the brunt of that. Um, but uh, l let me just give a, a couple of more examples. So in terms of protecting your credit cards, if you are in the U.S., there's a great service called privacy.com. I don't know how much they paid that for that domain, but uh, privacy.com basically you can create unlimited uh, temporary debit cards, which are fully legitimate Visa, MasterCard debit cards. And you can give that out to one, a particular site that is maybe a little bit sketchy. And you can pause that, you can shut it off, you can set limits to it. I'll give you an example of why this is useful. Um, I know somebody who was, uh, who recently had well, they gave their credit card number. They paid for something on some website, which was you know, fairly legitimate. But I guess that was compromised somehow. And they started getting charges to that card. But they were using privacy.com, uh, privacy.com debit card, and it was paused. And so nothing came out. And they just mm -hmm. deleted it. And they moved on with their life. 
Um, and so basically all these strategies are steps of sometimes we do have to use real information, uh, but finding a different way of giving that out. Um, one more in terms of email. I never give out my real email address. I will use a service like 33mail.com. And how this works is, all right, uh, let me explain. This will take 30 seconds. Let me explain though, because this is a really important one for not giving out your real email address. So you create an account on 33mail.com and you pick a username, for example, a jukebox, let's say. And so the next time you go to, uh, you know, whatever website selling underwear, let's say ex officio underwear, and you're, you're buying it from their website and it asks for an email address, well, you would say, for example, you can make up whatever you want, ex officio at jukebox, which is your username, at jukebox.33mail.com. And when you do that, that email address is instantly created. So it goes through, you get your receipt, but you never gave them your real email address. It will still get forwarded to your real email address and you can cancel it, you can block it. And if something, if that ever gets compromised, well, you know where it came from. So that's just another little uh, tip. That, yeah, that's uh, that's very useful. Cause that's, I'm always, a, you know, I have like a few emails, you know, I have that I just use to give out for buying stuff. Like I have just, you know, the one email that always gets used when I'm buying stuff, but that's all I use it for. Right. Um, yeah. But even that they're all connected because they're Google emails anyways, they're all Gmail. So it's not that, I don't know. doesn't seem like it's that foolproof. Yeah. But you have the right idea of, of just cordoning off different, different parts of your life. Um, yeah, so man, what is there that we can do? Cause like you do kind of have to rent everything nowadays, like even, even, uh, storage, like I've got, you know, external hard drive, but the external hard drive makes it kind of, you know, it's kind of an extra process. It makes it a little bit harder. So if I'm saving pictures or saving documents or whatever, it's an extra step. I have to hook up the hard drive. I have an old hard drive that kind of that kind of broke, so I have a bunch of information on an old hard drive that I've got to get fixed now, or I have to take it to a shop uh, to get my info out of that. And then who knows if the shop is going to steal my info when I'm in there? Uh, um, like, what 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 can we do? Like, do we just have to like suck it up and buy the external hard drives? Do we have to like try to get our own servers or or, or something like that? Yeah. So in that case. Um, there's so there's one particular thing you could do, which is to create a you know a, a storage server inside your own house called a, a NAS NAS. Uh, that's a little bit tricky. You'll, you'd want somebody to walk that uh, walk you through that. But basically, you could have the benefit of just kind of dragging you know dragging files onto this uh, this network, which is inside of your house, and it, it has the benefit of just being confined to your local area. But for most people. Yeah, the easiest thing to do is just to have the physical hard drive, have the physical hard drive, have a process. I, you know, file storage is, it's a laborious thing. So you just have to, you know, have a process and commit to the process, buy many hard drives. You know, maybe if you have a, you know, desktop PC, uh, don't, you know, just put them directly in there, connect them directly to your motherboard. So that will make it easy. That will make them transfer more quickly and just, you know, stock up on these things have the process 
And yes, it's going to be a little bit inconvenient, but that's kind of what you have to do in, in these cases. Um, because I wouldn't trust Dropbox. <laughs> I wouldn't trust Dropbox. I wouldn't trust iCloud. Um, I would, you know, there are some cloud storage services that are better than others, but even then, you know, you never know. So I like to keep things on my physical, uh, you know, in, in the physical realm as much as I can. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pain. Do you have a desktop PC or a laptop? Uh, I do most of my stuff from my, my MacBook, but I have uh, a, a desktop PC that I use for, um, for the, for the shows. Right. And so are you, are you, when you are wanting to store these photos and such, are you on your MacBook at that time or are you on your desktop? Uh, usually, usually the MacBook. Okay. Yeah. So I, I use a desktop usually I'm, I'm one of these, uh, uh, you know, PC people. And so when you do that, it's easy to just have the hard drive connected to the motherboard and it's already there. You never have to connect it. It's always connected. And those things transfer so fast, a lot faster than plugging in the USB and transferring it like that. So I don't know. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's weird because we have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from the days where we used to have photo, photo books, you know, you flip the pages and look at all the photos so we have way more info and way more photos, way more pics, way more videos than we ever used to, but it's almost impossible to uh, to keep them and keep them uh, stored without going through some extra steps. Because you can use, you know, uh, like Google has Google Drive, and you can you can buy storage on there, and it's on there. But then it's it's on the internet, and and people who wanted to try to find it and access it probably could. Yeah, I, I trust Google pretty well, but I don't want Google knowing my stuff. And, you know, they'll just as easily pass that along to whatever government authority wants it. Probably not the end of the world, but, you know, I just, I avoid that with just more physical storage. Um, there are a couple of uh, cloud storage services that promise not to do X, Y, and Z. But, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of just have to find the physical solution and commit to it. But I will also say, Having done this, my the first episode of my podcast and the first chapter of my book basically is a is trying to get people to embrace minimalism and realize that you know all those photos that you have. I mean, when was the last time you checked a lot of these? Probably you know probably a while. And so what I did is, let's say I had a hundred gigabytes on my desktop. I went through and I cut that down to five gigabytes. And I I was just ruthless and I cut the stuff out. And now all that stuff is organized in just a few files on my desktop. It was annoying. It took some time. But now I just keep the minimalist mindset. And that can help you in all kinds of ways uh, when you're pursuing privacy. Yeah. there's. Uh, I do shows sometimes with this guy, Aaron Clary. And uh, he's got a show. He does shows on, uh, on uh, YouTube. And uh, we do a, a show on Saturdays together sometimes uh, on Rule Zero. But he has a minimalist course. I took his minimalist course recently. I think he's taking it back online soon, but it, it's pretty great about just, uh, cutting out the bull crap. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of the burden that we have in our lives comes to like materialism and the fact that we like stuff more than people a lot of times. And we just want to hold on to things that don't serve us and just take up space. You know, when you have your, 
Yeah, I have a neighborhood where they have a rule. HOA has a rule that you have to be able to park at least one car in your garage. And I think it's crazy. Like I walk around, I see some of these homes and it's literally like just stuffed with shit in half of their garage. Like there's barely any room to walk. You put the car in, the car barely fits in. And I just can't get over, you know, what are you doing with this stuff? Like it's never moved. It hasn't moved. And it's just sitting there. And I'm pretty sure they probably have storage facility place too that they pay monthly fee to in order to keep all their other junk that they never touch. It's it's kind of wild. I, I had to move a lot in the last 10 years. I'd say I moved several times. And every time before a move, I would sit down and I would watch a bunch of um, that. What's that movie? Hoarders that show hoarders. <laughs> and watching that, you know, watching that shorter show, I was like, okay, yeah, I really don't need these pants. I haven't worn these pants in a while. I don't need, I don't need these things. I don't need this stuff. And, and that's very helpful and it's very therapeutic to like just get rid of crap you don't need. And now I'm at a point where I don't even like I have very minimal amount of like Halloween and Christmas decorations. If I can't fit all of my decorations and stuff into one tub, like it's too much. Like what do I need it for? It's not that. It's not that necessary. Yeah, that's a good mindset. And, you know, just apply that to your digital life as well. Clean up that uh, MacBook desktop. Yeah. Um, let's talk in this, Let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about uh, okay. cryptocurrency. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Yes. Uh, how long have you been paying attention to Bitcoin? When, when uh, uh, or have you, have you bought into Bitcoin or have you uh, supported the idea of these uh, alternative money systems? Well, that's a lot of questions there. I, I, I won't reveal uh, what I own about these things. Oh, you don't but yeah. there's there's two there's two questions when it comes to asking a privacy person about cryptocurrency. And that is, uh, you know, first of all, of course, is it worth putting one's money into? And that's a financial question. And I, I tend not to want to answer those. But the other question is, um, is crypto a suitable money for people who value privacy and liberty? You know, liberty from and privacy from the banking systems, from governments, from central banks. And of course, the answer to that is a resounding yes, with a number of caveats. Um, and those caveats are, you know, which cryptocurrency are we talking about? Are we talking about Bitcoin, which has a ledger that tracks all of your, you know, transactions? Not only does that, uh, John, but if you were to send me some Bitcoin, not only you know, could I see who, who's sending it to me, but I could click on your address and I could see how much money you have. I could yep. see who else you've sent stuff to. So it's it's very exposing indeed if you're using uh, Bitcoin. And the second question, uh, on the contrary, if you're using something like Monero, uh, Monero does not uh, do that kind of stuff. So it's considered the privacy coin. But then you get into yeah. the question of, well, how likely is Monero to become the thing? And you know, which of these is going to succeed. Uh, but the second caveat I have is, have you acquired the crypto without tying it to any personal information? So if you get your crypto on Coinbase, well, of course it's connected to your name. It's a, it's a connected to yep. your social security number, all this kind of stuff. And then finally, um, you know, are you careful about how you spend your crypto? Because in the future, if you pay X person, and you pay X service, then 
you can follow the the breadcrumbs and the IRS is doing this. A lot of people are doing this and they can find out all kinds of things about you, even if they don't know who uh, who bought the who bought the stuff. They can say, oh, he was in it looks like he went to this hipster coffee shop in Miami. So I guess he has some connection to Miami. And then he went to this place and he and he bought this and you can kind of uh, put together the pieces. And so those are the those are the caveats and we can discuss any of those you want. But that's kind of mm -hmm. that's kind of how I break it down. So I've heard of Monero before, but it's not on a lot of the exchanges. Where can you even uh, acquire Monero? Uh, what exchanges are they available on? And, and uh, after that, maybe you can get into if there's ways to not tie yourself to, you know, like Coinbase is going to KYC you and they're going to know what you bought and how much you bought and when you bought it. Yeah, those are good questions. And it's kind of the same question in a sense. How can you buy, like you're right, that Monero is not found on a number of these exchanges. Yeah. Um, and that's because they know that this is, well, for well, you know, the, let's be honest. This is the cryptocurrency. If you go to the dark web, uh, if you look at the black markets, otherwise known as the free markets, but the black markets, uh, this is the stuff they're using. It's Monero because this stuff can't be traced because it can't be tainted. You can't receive tainted Monero like you can receive tainted Bitcoin because uh, this stuff doesn't have a history. There's, there's no history attached to it. Um, and so you're right that these people are catching on to that. And so it, it's difficult. It's difficult to acquire Monero. The best way to do it is to have some Bitcoin and then to uh, buy Monero. And when you start doing that, um, I'm not familiar with a lot, a ton of options. There are some unregulated exchanges, which mm -hmm. I think are worth looking into. You know, I'm thinking of something like Morph Token, Morph Token, or Trade Ogre. These are sort of unregulated exchanges, and you can trade, uh, you know, Bitcoin for Monero or you know whatever you prefer. Um, but the fundamental question is, if you are buying, let's, if you are trying to buy, let's say Bitcoin. Let's go back to Bitcoin because. Let's be honest. That's the most likely one to succeed. I would guess that has yeah. the biggest, uh, that has the most money invested in it. And so, how does one get Bitcoin privately? It's kind of difficult, to be honest. So, and when I say privately, I mean no name, no credit card, no banking, no banking account, you know, no IP address attached to it. And so, you have a few options. You could go to an ATM, a Bitcoin ATM, put in cash, hope that it doesn't ask for too much information. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, I, for example, the last time I checked out Bitcoin ATMs, I went to six of them. Two of them were broken. That happens a lot. The mm -hmm. other ones uh, required information of me that I was not willing to give. Mm. Now, sometimes it'll say, you know, give me a name. What I'm looking for is give me a name and a phone number. I can work with that. Uh, you know, the name, you put whatever you want and it will accept it. The phone number, you can go online to a website like uh, free phone num, <clears throat> free phone num, n u m, and they basically have phone numbers that you can use to receive a, an SMS code. And so I'll get on my phone and I'll go to that. So it's not my actual phone number. And sometimes they'll accept that. And in that case, I can use the Bitcoin ATM for a fee. It's usually like ten to twenty percent, which is a huge markup. I understand, but that's kind of the cost of running these things. So yeah. your ATM, Bitcoin ATM, is one option. It's worth looking into. You can sell something online, a YouTube video, uh, something in person, and ask for them to pay you in Bitcoin. That's another way of getting it privately. Uh, you know, you can mine Bitcoin yourself. 
uh, which is a little bit tricky, and you won't get a lot doing that. Um, and those are those are kind of the the main tried and true ways we can we can get into some more. But that's kind of the the basic overview. And there, I'll there let you are riff uh, on that. real real world real real world brokers too that will uh, meet with you and and trade you cash for for Bitcoin. That's usually markup too. When you're meeting with those people. But right. Are you, are you talking about like uh, finding people online and uh, like hooking up like Craigslist style? Uh, yeah, there's there's people you can meet up with and, and you know, even in person and uh, make transactions yeah. that way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, not a lot of people willing to meet these days. And if you do take that route, you're right. There are some, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's there are a lot of websites that will hook you up with people. If you do do that, what I would recommend is go to a public place, of course, safe place, public place, bring your laptop, don't bring a phone, bring your laptop um, and make sure the transaction goes through and then you give them the cash. And so just, you know, be very safe about that. But yeah, that's that's definitely an option. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a big thing, man. I, I started hearing about, I, yeah, I got into uh, Ron Paul talking about sound money, you know, uh, about a decade ago. And that was what made me start looking at Bitcoin. And it was like, I remember being, it being five, five to $20 and like telling people about it, but I never bought any. And I, oh, I waited, man. I waited to buy in until after, uh, the Mt. Gox hack, it was already at 1200. It got hacked and then the price started coming down. And then that's when I started buying into it. But if I, I really wish I would have, yeah, it would have been nice to pull the trigger when <laughs> it was, uh, as cheap as it was, under a hundred dollars, that's a pretty big bargain. Oh, like, for sure. Well, I think everybody everybody can yeah. we're right with that. <laughs> almost fifty thousand right now. That's pretty even nice. uh even Peter Schiff, who's the the number one biggest Bitcoin doubter, he said, Yeah, of course I would want to, you know, have have uh, bought into this at the very beginning. Who you know, who wouldn't? Yeah, this there's a meme with him, uh, you know, Bitcoin twelve hundred dollars. Uh, big uh, and gold was what seventeen hundred dollars, and then now it's like fifty, and then it's, it's gold still the same. It right, be Peter Schiff. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, some of the topics we talk about was the uh, you know the cancer culture is a big thing, and I think this is a big reason why privacy is kind of so important right now is because we have this weird. Um, it's kind of like you know Stalinist Russia or or uh, uh, Maoist China. You know, if you are thinking the wrong things, if you have the wrong opinion, you you're getting removed from society. You're not getting uh, beaten and and killed in public right now, but you are getting removed from uh, the ability to to make money, have a job, uh, live peacefully, because people are are doxing you and you have payment processors are kicking you off their platforms and not allowing you to make money. What, what is the antidote to this? What would, what way around this type of cancel culture that we're facing? Uh, can we implement? Yeah. So cancel culture, interestingly enough, fat fit very well into my, my own privacy strategies, because for me, privacy is all about owning your stuff. Um, and being decentralized. I feel like privacy and, and decentralization are two similar concepts. And decentralization means that 
you are part of a system that cannot kick you out because there's no central authority. And so I kind of apply this to cancel culture. And you know, some people say, well, cancel culture, that, that doesn't exist. You know, you'll come across those people and you know, I'll, I'll introduce them to my list of you know, 200 instances of, of cancel culture. Uh, but it, it's absolutely happening. You know, and there was a study that somebody did recently. They said 60% of people buy now based on politics. You know, it used to be that you buy something because it's good. Uh, but now you buy, you know, based on politics, and uh, I, I do that too these days. So um, I'm not. Oh, yeah. uh, I I uh, I threw out all my Gillette stuff a while ago. What is a man? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Gillette. My goodness. And um, I found I, they have these uh, these razors at the dollar store. There's a dollar. It's like five blades. It's like an oldie time one. It works great. And uh, I never knew that that existed. I can't believe I've been spending so much money on razors my whole life. And I could have bought a $1 razor at the dollar store. Yeah. And and how, how dumb can you be if you're Gillette? Let's go after men. How about, how about, we, how about well, we go after the people who use our, our razors? I, I think I've seen studies are showing that it's like 80, 85% of spending is done by women. Right, right. So I think that's why a lot of the marketing. And there's a lot of legs here, to shave. Yeah, there's a lot. Well, it's, I mean, uh, it's also if you're in a, you know, if you're not divorced and if you're in a, in a relationship, you know, married family, it's it's the wife who usually is buying the stuff for the man in the first place. Like most right. guys yeah, I know, we use the same, we use the same rusty razor for five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, good point. So maybe maybe the first step is to be more aware of the companies that you support because in a free market, your purchases, uh, that is an ethical, you know, you're, you're creating the ethical world you want to live in by supporting X company or Y company. And so what, what can you do to cancel, cancel culture, so to speak? Well, um, basically you start, the first thing to do is to think about redundancies. And so, you know, when I'm talking to people who run businesses and they're afraid of this, the first thing to do, of course, is to get a list of your email addresses of your your followers, um, and you have that list. You can you know create it as a newsletter list, and then you simply back that up on your physical computer uh, regularly. And so that's a that's a good first thing to do. And after that, you just start to learn to use alternative systems. So if you use YouTube, uh, you know find an alternative. Uh, I upload my videos to YouTube, yes, because that's where you'll find some people. I also upload to BitChute and library lbry i their their website is odyssey.com actually that's confusing so bit you odyssey you know rumble all these alternatives just uh getting into the habit of uploading on all of them so those are good alternatives uh you know when you're getting a newsletter list don't get mailchimp because mailchimp has been known to be censorious yeah. so yeah. find somebody who's not mailchimp uh yeah. if you use paypal i'm sorry uh well use it as long as you can but of course accept other uh Payment methods have multiple banks. Have a you know a big bank, Wells Fargo, but also a, a credit union. Um, accept crypto as much as you can. Uh, you know, um, so these these are just a few examples of you have something and it's a big tech something, and so you want to have a, a backup plan. If you, for example, have a Gmail address, I recommend getting you know a Proton Mail address or getting your own domain email address so that if Gmail for whatever reason decide to kick you out one day, well, you can funnel that, uh, funnel your emails to whatever service you want because you actually own that domain. It's not a, at gmail.com. It's a, at whatever you bought.com. Yeah. 
It's good. I, I uh, stream to a, a platform called Rockfin also. And Rockfin, uh, they pay out in crypto. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, you have to be a, a subscription based, though. So people have to either form a, a, an account or, or uh, subscribe and pay, you know, monthly in order to get to a premium content. There's a lot of free content. I stream the, the podcast for free. Uh, but I put a lot of technique videos and some other videos that I make, I put behind the uh, premium paywall. And you can say whatever you want, so you don't have to be worried about being demonetized. And I get paid out in uh, what's Ray tokens. So uh, I support the crypto community as well in doing that. But there's a lot of, there you a lot go. of stuff yeah. on Rockfin. I also see that you, you also are streaming on YouTube. So you, you have both yeah. you know both covered. And if YouTube ever wanted to shut you down, which they they probably won't, uh, then you can you know get that audience as well. So it's all about having redundancies, backup plans. Realize that, that whatever system you use, I have right. some topics that I talk about stuff, and I'll get demonetized. Uh, yeah, but like yeah, I don't I don't push too much of the the limits. I do mention some things, but I don't think I'm not high profile enough. Uh, you know, if I'm talking about ivermectin or something like that, I'm not going to get my video pulled because I didn't uh, do a whole show about it. Right. Right. And, you know, the payment processors, that's the tricky part. Uh, that's the tricky part. You know, you had MasterCard who came out and said they're going to ban far right you know, people. You had, I remember HSBC said that if anybody comes into their uh, into their lobbies without a face mask on, they were going to immediately cancel their accounts. You know, you have which is, uh, which PayPal. Is such a joke. Which is such a joke. They how much how much trouble have they gotten into for laundering drug cartel money? Oh, they're responsible for all kinds of yeah. terrible things. Yeah. I've, Un I've no unbelievable doubt. horror, these people. And like, oh, but if you come in with our place without a mask on, we'll ban you. It's just the the amount of hypocrisy. It's just I never thought I would live in an age where like that was something that was possible. It's it's pretty unbelievable. And so when it when it comes to payment, you know, as you said, get uh, a way of receiving crypto. That's a fantastic option, of course. And you can just put you know a straight up address so that there's no intermediary if if you want to do that. And you know have have multiple accounts. Just have all kinds of different ways uh, that you can receive money. Uh, like I said, um, you know, also have a bank account with a you know a, a credit union in addition to a big bank, just have all this kind of separation, sit down and think, okay, who am I relying on? You know, is it a, do I have a, you know, a square account for payment processing? Well, maybe I'll also get a, um, a Stripe account as well. So if one kicks me off, bam, I have a backup. Yeah. Options, make sure you have options available to you guys. What, what are the, uh, what are the biggest reasons or, or where were we, where was it that we started to lose the most of our privacy? I think a lot of it probably happened with, you know, 9-11 and Patriot Act. But historically, was there any other large uh, events that happened that kind of took that away? Because privacy was a, a big part of, you know, our Constitution, which is kind of like toilet paper now. Uh, but what, what other incidences besides 9-11 can you think of that, that maybe pushed us to this point where we, we don't really have any privacy? Yeah, 9-11 was in many ways a continuation of the philosophy that had been promoted uh, for the last hundred years. And so when I look at a lot of our problems, not just privacy, but all kinds of problems, I look to the early 20th century 
and Mr. Woodrow Wilson, the uh, the great statist, um, who gave us the income tax, he gave us the Federal <laughs> Reserve, um, he gave us the uh, a number of other lovely things. He said um, uh, he kept us out of war, and then he proceeded to get us into World War One, um, and so. Uh, I trace things back to around this time. When you have an idea that the state should be providing things for people. And so yeah. the welfare the welfare state is born during this time. And it's an interesting transition in, in humanity because up to this point, America, for example, was a great decentralized place, meaning yeah. that laws were decided within a community, right? You had your sheriff or whatever. Laws were decided within a community. The federal government had very little say in what people were doing now transition into the 20th century. Now, all of a sudden, you have um, railroad tracks that can that have basically erased the ability for people to hide in the sort of rural places of the world. And you have a government that, as the industrial revolution happens, uses a lot of this technology in order to have a, a tighter grip on people. And you also have the, during this kind of scientific blossoming, the idea that we can, you know, we can perfect things. We understand how the world works. H.G. Wells, the science fiction writer, he was a big proponent of this. He said, you know, we understand how things work, so we shouldn't have decentralized systems anymore. We should have a way of arranging things and tallying things, right? This is when the census becomes a big deal, right? The census says we have all these people. We have X amount of poor people. Therefore, we must do something. And so the welfare state kind of burgeons during this time because you have all this information, all this data, and you have the mindset that we have to interfere. And so it's at this time that big government takes over. You have things like the um, the Espionage Act in the United States in 1917, which basically says that it's illegal to speak out against the war. And you have the post office, actually interesting, the US post office during this time is an incredibly censorious institution. They go and they burn books in the mail they um, they come after people. They come after pornographers. They're actually a huge surveillance institution. A funny history of the post office, and this is all happening during this time. And I think 9/11 is just a, a continuation of the idea that safety is more important than anything else, which is a ridiculous concept. Freedom is much more important than safety yep. and security. Um, and it, you know, it, things have just evolved over over the last hundred years. But it's the same mindset, which is that. We should control things from the top down. And of course, those people are a few people at the top who think they know best. Yeah. It seems like it's where all the <clears throat> the wokeism comes from is people who think they know better than everybody else. You hear you just hear it in the inflection in their voice and the tone about stuff, where they talk about everything. There's no like I you can't I just stopped even trying to have conversations with people who view things the way they do because it's just them talking down to you and trying to embarrass you because they know better than you and anything you could possibly say is wrong and they're absolutely right and they're just smarter than you and it's just it's it's futile it's a futile conversation to to get into it you know they're just very close-minded but they call you close-minded because you won't just bow down to their authorities right the uh, a funny example of the the hypocrisy there is uh, I remember because um, I keep a tally of this. You know, uh, Alex Jones, Infowars. They were they were basically blitzkrieged a couple of years ago, kicked off of Apple, kicked off of YouTube, yep. all within like a 24-hour period. So there was cl clearly collusion. Uh, mm -hmm. And I remember PayPal. PayPal said something like, um, 
you know, be, uh, because Alex Infowars does not fit our idea of inclusion, basically we're going to exclude him. <laughs> and so it's just a total hypocrisy, um, a, a philosophy that that says we're we're about you know accepting everybody. You know, I, I read an email from an institution I'm part of uh, the other day, and they said, uh, you know, you must wear your mask or X, Y, and Z. We're going to come after you. And at the end, it said, let's all be kind and caring during this time. I'm just like, do you not understand? You want to yeah. control me and tell and tell me what to do, and you think that, you know, you think that's inclusive. You think that that's that's a good thing. There's just no there's no self awareness in it at all. It's like do what I say, or I'll kill you. Everybody have a nice day. It's just exactly, and and let's let's make no mistake. You know, Mao Zedong said that all. Uh, you know, government power comes from the uh, barrel of a gun. And so, yeah. you know, some people are like, why are you so afraid of X, Y, and Z, the government? Dollars. Right. And I say, well, what happens if you don't pay your taxes and then you resist arrest when, you know, they come for you? What do you think is yeah. going to happen? You know, they shoot you, they kill you. If you don't like the judgment on uh, your divorce settlement and you say no, like, police are coming to take the money from you by force. Like, exactly. Yeah. And that's a, that's a whole nother interesting it's thing. Compliance, yeah. Divorce compliance to through the, through the, through the risk, the threat of violence, compliance, yeah. compli compliance through violence. It's all it is. Yeah. And the other thing, and I feel okay saying this since you're not on YouTube, but people have such a respect for, you know, the government law. And I understand that because if you don't follow that, you're going to get punished. But you know, it used to be a profound American value to be, beholden to a moral law and not a government law because yeah. the government if you're in if you are in germany in 1941 the government law says that you have to report jews right so clearly there's nothing inherently good about government law um so have a strong moral code and you know don't get brain some people think that it's inherently good to stop at a red light even if there's nobody around that's just yeah. an inherently morally thing to do it's, it's an inherently morally thing to put your shopping cart back in the car rack. Right. Yeah. It, I, I, you know, it's just it, it prevents it from rolling around and getting blown into something. It prevents it prevents a lot of problems. Just put your shopping cart back. Stop at the red light. I get it. But like, I don't need somebody to point a gun in my face to, to make me do it. Right. So I'm I'm all about voluntary interactions and not coercive ones. And when I put it like that, it, it's really hard for people to argue against me. They will though. <laughs> they will though. All right, uh, Gabriel, we've been going here for about an hour. Um, thank you for coming on the show. That was really informative. I think you guys got a lot out of that. Um, do you have any parting words for everyone to, uh, to get on the privacy and keep themselves safe? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm happy to come back anytime. There's, you know, I still have eighty percent of my notes that that I didn't even touch. So I'm happy to yeah. come back and and we can focus on a particular topic. But uh, no, I'm I'm Gabriel Custodiates. My my book is The Watchman Guide to Privacy. You can find that on Amazon. I, I know it's a big tech company, but they they make things really easy. So I'd say that's the best place to uh, to start The Watchman Guide to Privacy. And just remember, it's a mindset. Be minimalist. Uh, and there is hope. There are things you can do. You know, start small and develop habits. Use private messengers. Have redundancies. Uh, avoid big tech as much as you can. There are there are alternatives these days, and just start to educate yourself a little bit more. 
like all things. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm going to play a song for these guys and, uh, and wrap it up. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, guys, that was, uh, that was more, I'm going to be processing that for a minute. It's kind of scary, man. Cause like, how do you put the genie back in the bottle? If you've been, uh, not private for a while and then you go into, uh, trying to be more private, I'm going to need to move into the uh, woods, hide from people. All right, guys, keep it safe, keep it private. I'll check y'all later.